Section 1 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Rando. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. Mr. Pepys. Mr. Pepys was a Puritan. Froude once painted a portrait of Bunyan as an old cavalier. He almost persuaded one that it was true, till the later discovery of Bunyan's name on the muster roll of one of Cromwell's regiments showed that he had been a Puritan from the beginning. If one calls Mr. Pepys a Puritan, however, one does not do so for the love of paradox or at a guess. He tells us himself that he was a great roundhead when I was a boy, and that on the day on which King Charles was beheaded, he said, Were I to preach on him, my text should be, The memory of the wicked shall rot. After the restoration, he was uneasy, lest his old schoolfellow, Mr. Christmas, should remember these strong words. True, when it came to the turn of the Puritans to suffer, he went with a fine impartiality to see General Harrison disemboweled at Charing Cross. Thus it was my chance, he comments, to see the king beheaded at Whitehall, and to see the first bloodshed in revenge for the blood of the king at Charing Cross. From thence to my lord's, and took Captain Cuttons and Mr. Shepley to the Sun Tavern, and did give them some oysters. Pepys was a spectator, and a gourmet even more than he was a Puritan. He was a Puritan indeed, only north-northwest. Even when at Cambridge, he gave evidence of certain susceptibilities to the sins of the flesh. He was admonished on one occasion for having been scandalously overserved with drink ye night before. He even began to write a romance entitled Love a Cheat which he tore up ten years later, though he liked it very well. At the same time, his writing never lost the tang of Puritan speech. Blessed be God are the first words of his shocking diary. When he had to give up keeping the diary nine and a half years later, owing to failing sight, he wound up after expressing his intention of dictating in the future a more seemly journal to an amanuensis with the characteristic sentences, or, if there be anything, which cannot be much, now my amours to Deb are past. I must endeavor to keep a margin in my book open, to add here and there a note in shorthand with my own hand, and so I betake myself to that course, which is almost as much as to see myself go into my grave for which, in all the discomforts that will accompany my being blind, the good God prepare me. With these words, the great book ends, the diary of one of the godliest and most lecturous of men. In some respects, Mr. Peach reminds one of a type that is now commoner in Scotland, I fancy, than elsewhere. He himself seems at one time to have taken the view that he was of Scottish descent. None of the authorities, however, will admit this, and there is apparently no doubt that he belonged to an old Cambridgeshire family that had come down in the world 
his father having dwindled into a London tailor. In temperament, however, he seems to me to have been more Scottish than the very Scottish Boswell. He led a double life with the same simplicity of heart. He was Scottish in the way in which he lived one eye on the lassies and the other on the ministers. He was notoriously respectable, notoriously hard-working, a judge of sermons, fond of the bottle, cautious, thrifty. He had all the virtues of a KCB. He was no scapegrace or scallywag such as you might find nowadays quarreling over his sins in Chelsea. He lived so far as the world was concerned in the complete starch of rectitude. He was a pillar of society, and whatever age he had been born in, he would have accepted its orthodoxy. He was as grave a man as Holy Willie. Stevenson has commented on the gradual decline of his primness in the later years of the diary. His favorite ejaculation, Lord, occurs, he declares, but once that I have observed in 1660, never in 61, twice in 62, and at least five times in 63, after which the lords may be said to pullulate like herrings, with here and there a solitary damned, as it were a well among the shoal. As a matter of fact, Mr. Pepys' use of the expression Lord has been greatly exaggerated, especially by the parodist. His primness, if that is the right word, never altogether deserted him. We discovered this even in the story of his relations with women. In 1665, for instance, he writes with surprised censoriousness of Mrs. Pennington. There we drank and laughed, he relates, and she willingly suffered me to put my hand in her bosom very wantonly and keep it there long, which methought was very strange, and I looked upon myself as a man mightily deceived in a lady, for I could not have thought she could have suffered it by her former discourse with me, so modest she seemed, and I know not what. It is a sad world for idealists. Mr. Pepys's Puritanism, however, was something less than Mr. Pepys. It was but a pair of creaking Sunday boots on the feet of a pagan. Mr. Pepys was an appreciator of life to a degree that not many Englishmen have been since Chaucer. He was a walking appetite, and not an entirely ignoble appetite either. He reminds one in some respects of the poet in Browning's how it strikes a contemporary, save that he had more worldly success. One fancies him with the same inquisitive feral on the end of his stick, the same scrutinizing hat, the same eye for the bookstall, and the man who slices lemon into drink. If any cursed a woman, he took note. Browning's poet, however, apparently took note on behalf of a higher power. It is difficult to imagine Mr. Pepys sending his diary to the address of the recording angel. Rather, the diary is the soliloquy of an egoist, disinterested and daring as a bad boy's reverie over the fire. Nearly all those who have written about Pepys are perplexed by the question whether Pepys wrote his diary with the view to its ultimate publication. This seems to me to betray some ignorance of the working of the human mind. Those who find one of the world's puzzles in the fact that Mr. Pepys wrapped his great book in the secrecy of a cipher 
as though he meant no other eye ever to read it but his own, perplexed their brains unnecessarily. Pepys was not the first human being to make his confession in an empty confessional. Criminals, lovers, and other egoists, for lack of a priest, will make their confessions to a stone wall or a tree. There is no more mystery in it than in the singing of birds. The motive may be either to obtain discharge from the sense of guilt or a desire to save and store up the very echoes and last drops of pleasure. Human beings keep diaries for as many different reasons as they write lyric poems. With Pepys, I fancy the main motive was a simple happiness in chewing the cud of pleasure. The fact that so much of his pleasure had to be kept secret from the world made it all more necessary for him to babble when alone. True, in the early days his confidences are innocent enough. Pepys began to write in cipher some time before there was any purpose in it save the common prudence of a secretive man. Having built, however, this secret and solitary fastness, he gradually became more daring. He had discovered a room to the walls of which he dared speak aloud. Here we see the respectable man liberated. He no longer needs to be on his official behavior, but may play the part of a small Nero, if he wishes, behind the safety of shorthand. And how he takes advantage of his opportunities. He remains to the end something of a Puritan in his standards and his public carriage. But in his diary he reveals himself as a pig from the sty of Epicurus, naked and only half ashamed. He never, it must be admitted, entirely shakes off his timidity. At a crisis he dare not confess in English even in a cipher, but puts the worst in bad French with a blush. In some instances, the French may be for facetiousness rather than concealment, as in the reference to the ladies of Rochester Castle in 1665. Thence to Rochester, walked to the Crown, and while dinner was getting ready, I did then walk to visit the old castle ruins, which have been a noble place, and there going up, I did upon the stairs overtake three pretty maids or women, and took them up with me, and I did visit sur mouchard et toucher la main, and next to my great pleasure, but Lord, to see what a dreadful thing it is to look down the precipice, for it did fright me mightily, and hinder me of much pleasure, which I would have made to myself in the company of these three, if it had not been for that. Even here, however, Mr. Pepys's French has a suggestion of evasion. He always had a faint hope that his conscience would not understand French. Some people have written as though Mr. Pepys, in confessing himself in his diary, had confessed us all. They professed to see in the diary simply the image of every man in his fair skin. They think of Pepys as an ordinary man who wrote an extraordinary book. To me it seems that Pepys's diary is not more extraordinary as a book than Pepys himself is as a man. Taken separately, nine out of ten of his characteristics may seem ordinary enough. His fears, his greeds, his vices, his utilitarian repentances. They were compounded in him, however, in such proportion as to produce an entirely new mixture, 
a character hardly less original than Dr. Johnson or Charles Lamb. He had not any great originality or virtue, as these others had, but he was immensely original in his responsiveness, his capacity for being interested, tempted, and pleased. The voluptuous nature of the man may be seen in such a passage as that in which speaking of the wind music, when the angel comes down in the virgin martyr, he declares, It ravished me, and indeed in a word, did wrap up my soul so that it made me really sick, just as I have formerly been when in love with my wife. Writing of Mrs. Nip on another occasion, he says, She and I singing, and God forgive me. I do still see that my nature is not to be quite conquered, but will esteem pleasure above all things, though yet in the middle of it, it has reluctancies after my business, which is neglected by my following my pleasure. However, music and women, I cannot but give way to, whatever my business is. Within a few weeks of this, we find him writing again. So abroad to my rulers of my books, having, God forgive me, a mind to see Nan there, which I did, and so back again, and then out again to see Mrs. Betton's, who were looking out of the window as I came through Finchurch Street, so that, indeed, I am not, as I ought to be, able to command myself in the pleasures of my eye. Though page after page of the diary reveals Mr. Pepys as an extravagant pleasure lover, however, he differed from the majority of pleasure lovers in literature and not being a man of taste. He had a rolling rather than a fastidious eye, he kissed promiscuously and was not aspiring in his lust. He once held Lady Castlemaine in his arms, indeed, but was in a dream. He reflected, he tells us, that since it was a dream, and that I took so much real pleasure in it, what a happy thing it would be if when we are in our graves, as Shakespeare resembles it, we could dream, and dream but such dreams as this, that then we should not need be so fearful of death as we are at this plague time. He praises this dream at the same time as the best that ever was dreamt. Mr. Pepys's idea of paradise, it would be seen, was that commonly attributed to the Mohammedans. Meanwhile, he did his best to turn London into an anticipatory harem. We get a pleasant picture of a little round-head sultan in such a sentence as, At night had Mercer combed my head, and so to supper, sing a psalm, and to bed. It may seem unfair to overemphasize the voluptuary in Mr. Pepys, but it is Mr. Pepys, the promiscuous amours, stringing his lute, God forgive him, on a Sunday. That is the outstanding figure in the diary. Mr. Pepys attracts us, however, in a host of other aspects. Mr. Pepys, whose nose his jealous wife attacked with the red-hot tongs as he lay in bed. Mr. Pepys, who always held an anniversary feast on the date on which he had been cut for the stone. Mr. Pepys, who was not troubled at it at all, as soon as he saw that the lady who had spat on him in the theater was a pretty one. Mr. Pepys, drinking. Mr. Pepys, among his dishes. Mr. Pepys, among princes, Mr. Pepys, who was mightily pleased as he listened to my Aunt Jenny, 
a poor, religious, well-meaning good soul, talking of nothing but God Almighty. Mr. Pepys, as he counts up his blessings in wealth, women, honor, and life, and decides that all these things are ordered by God Almighty to make me contented. Mr. Pepys, as having just refused to see Lady Pickering, he comments, but how natural it is for us to slight people out of power. Mr. Pepys, who groans as he sees his office clerks sitting in more expensive seats than himself at the theater. Mr. Pepys is a man so many-sided indeed that in order to illustrate his character one would have to quote the greater part of his diary. He is a mass of contrasts and contradictions. He lives without sequence except in the business of getting on, in which he might well have been taken as a model by Samuel Smiles. One thinks of him sometimes as a sort of Deacon Brody, sometimes as the most innocent sinner who ever lived. For though he was brutal and snobbish and self-seeking and simian, he had a pious and a merry and a grateful heart. He felt that God had created the world for the pleasure of Samuel Pepys and had no doubt that it was good. End of section one.